You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. What a wonderful crowd tonight. Yeah. Yoo-hoo! Well, welcome everyone and thank you for coming. My name is Praveen, I'm one of the co-owners of the Booksmith Bookstore. And I would like to welcome and thank everyone for coming tonight for Chuck Palahniuk's only San Francisco Bay Area appearance for his new book, Tell All. So I have a couple of housekeeping announcements before we get started. I would like you guys to please turn your cell phones, pagers, and other beeping devices off to minimize interruptions, and thank you for doing that. I would also like people to just consolidate the seats and not leave any blank seats in the, uh, any open seats in the middle. We still have a few people coming in late, and the event is completely sold out, and it will be great to minimize interruptions if any vacant seats are not in the middle. So if you guys can just consolidate and move kind of like inwards and up, you know, uh, towards me and try to leave all the blank seats as much behind as possible, that will be wonderful. As you guys are doing that, let me ask a couple of questions. How many of you have heard of Booksmith before? <laughs> Excellent. How many people actually have been to the Booksmith before? Quite a few. Well, Booksmith and uh, Chuck have a long association. We've been big supporters and fans of Chuck's work for many, many years, and I've enjoyed hosting him for many times. Uh, our independent bookstore is located in the Haight-Ashbury, and uh, you're welcome to come and visit us anytime over there. Uh, one more question. How many of you have been to a Chuck Palahniuk reading before? Yeah. You guys are in for a real treat. Those of you who have never been to Chuck Palahniuk reading before, you guys are in for a real, real treat. You're going to have a lot of fun tonight. Uh, now, before we get started, let me introduce uh, our moderator and uh, master of ceremonies for tonight, Rick Kleffel. Rick is also a, a great longtime friend and supporter of the Booksmith. He's hosted many events for us and always does a wonderful job. Uh, Rick also does a lot of author interviews, and he has a website called agonycolumn.com. Uh, agonycolumn.com. Write that down, check it out. He has some great author interviews on uh, his website. So without further, much further ado, I would like to welcome Rick to get us started. Thank you very much. Now, if you're here, you know who Chuck Palahniuk is. You probably know this story of February 21st, 1962, young Chuck Palahniuk was born with the first breath he drew in this world. He exhaled and screamed, and with that scream, he alerted the nurses in the maternity ward to a fire that would have otherwise swept through the maternity ward and taken the lives of young David Foster Wallace, born on the same day, Irma Bombeck, who was visiting on her birthday on the same day, and Jennifer Love Hewitt, who was also born on the same day. Chuck Palahniuk, before he finished taking his second breath, had already saved the lives of many people in this world. 
and it went on. In the third grade, there's Chuck on the playground, and he's confronting the bullying, hulking menace of this young man named Edward Norton, who took down every kid on the playground, including poor willowy Brad Pitt. There on the playground, Chuck stripped off his clothes, rippling muscles. He took on Norton, fist to fist, right there in the playground. A playground legend was born in that moment. And though he left school in the sixth grade, Chuck Polinick has earned a master's degree in life. Even as we speak, you're going to see him when he comes up on the stage. He might look a little bit fatigued, but that's just because after stripping the razor wire from Guantanamo Bay, he looped it into a giant net. He sacrificed his own collection of Victorian sexual implements, <laughs> dove to the bottom of the Gulf Sea, and there to plug, use the plugs to plug the hole in the golf course, thus saving not just many wildlife, but the entire world. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to welcome, fresh from the Gulf Stream, Chuck Polinick. How did you phrase that? Might look puny? <laughs> A little bit oily and petite. Petite. Oh, thanks. I still am heartbroken from when I read Jim Uhl's first treatment of the Fight Club screenplay. And he had the little character synopsis for who Jack would be, the narrator. And he said, I envision Jack as, as somewhat like Chuck Palahniuk himself. Sort of, sort of vaguely still young, but kind of dry, dried out. <laughs> and that's why I choose not to engage in that process. And before we get started, Aileen, you're here with your mom. Where are you at? Where are you at? Come on up and get your secret prize. What is it? What is it? <laughs> Your mom so set you up for that. So, who here has never been to an author event of any kind? Never been to hear an author read their shit? Um, Okay, that's, that's better than it has been in the past years. Usually it's everybody. And so I wanted to let you know some things off the bat. And one is that the world is full of really beautiful, special stories, really profound, wonderful, magical stories. The world is full of those stories, but tonight will not be. 
And at some point tonight, it's very likely I'm going to say something that pisses you off. Especially you. <laughs> and, uh, and that's just my job. Nothing personal. It's what I do for a living. And the way tonight is going to go is that we're going to play some games. Those of you with enormous lung capacity may win some prizes. I'm going to read a story that I wrote specifically for tour. It's a story that's not published, not available otherwise. And then Rick and I are going to chew the fat. We're going to answer some of your questions. And then I'm going to go take all the Ambien I have left. <laughs> because tonight is the last stop on my tour. And the most important thing to know about this evening is Rick's name. Because as we compete, the way you are recognized as a winner is not just to do the thing, but to do the thing and be getting Rick's attention. So his name is Rick. And he decides whether you Turkey went flat. This year's prize is. Is an inflatable Thanksgiving turkey. Just what you always wanted. And this one has a tiny pinhole that I put a patch over. And I can feel a little tiny bit of air. So, This is what the turkey looks like in its original packaging. <laughs> and the way that you win a turkey. Let me tell you something about minimalism. In the style that I was taught, which Tom Spanbauer learned from Gordon Lish, who was kind of the father, credited as the father of minimalism, Tom went to Columbia and got an MFA from Gordon Lish, and then came to Portland and started teaching for $20 an hour what he had learned from Lish. And one tenet of minimalism is that you keep your number of characters and settings and objects very limited so that you can revisit them very much more frequently and you can move your plot forward very effectively, very fast, rather than having to slow down and introduce new elements. So, in every book, there are very key objects that are kind of through-line objects that evolve and, and have a different meaning ongoingly throughout the story. And this year in Tell All, <laughs> 
the through line objects are cheap ass industry awards <laughs> that seem really, really special when you win them. But over a lifetime of dusting them and polishing them become just this kind of cluttered burden. You can imagine how messy Meryl Streep's house must be now. <laughs> Who blew this one up? So, the first two rounds are going to be you all blowing this shit up. <laughs> and this is how it works. Are you ready to hurl? On your mark, get set, blow. Okay. Remember, each thing consists of three chambers. There is the figure, it's the first chamber. The middle part is the second chamber. The bottom is the death chamber. It's the most difficult part. And to be noticed, you have to hold it over your head like this to show that it's fully inflated. You have to get Rick's attention. That's right. I'm wearing a black hat, and I'm looking for your attention. Got to be all the way blown up. Got to be standing. Got to be like this. These statues must be fully erect. <laughs> there you go.
No. Rick? Give us the last two. Okay. Make them count. Make them count. I, I, we need to see really stiff, erect statues here. No flaccidness allowed. Okay, there we go. That's it. That's the first round. Da -da -da -da. That's all, folks. One more. So, that is how it works. Okay, there will be two more rounds, and it's just going to get more and more unpleasant, so. So, now we move on to the reading portion. In, in, <laughs> that's really loud for breathing. In pretty much everything that I write, I try to have a, a kind of internal paradox where the nature of the story plays against the style, where the content plays against the style or the form plays against the content. And in Fight Club, for example, it was kind of a, a comedy about the bureaucracy or the rules of anarchy, which shouldn't have any rules, <laughs> but ends up having this shitload of rules because everything does. And I, I love how in Portland, Oregon, whenever the anarchists are gonna have a big civil disobedience, uh, a big protest, they all phone each other and say, ooh, what are you gonna wear to the riot? <laughs> I'm gonna wear black. Let's all wear black. And even, you know, mayhem becomes very scripted and very choreographed. And in, uh, in Tell All, this year's book, I loved the idea of using the, the language of romance novels, because my grandmother used to get Harlequin romances by subscription, and she'd read easily a dozen in a month, and they would end up in the basement with the National Geographics and the Reader's Digest. And my brother and I would kind of swipe them because we thought that they would be really filthy and we would try to find the really dirty parts. 
So we'd be out in the garage or the shop or the barn trying to find any trace of filth in these books. But they were written in such a way that it was really hard to tell what was even happening. <laughs> and my brother Matt, I would read him these parts and it would be something like, uh, he took the full length of his steely manhood and he plunged it to the hilt into her salty chambers. And my brother would just look at me and say, I think he just stuck a knife in her ear. <laughs> Grammy is kind of a sick fuck, isn't she? <laughs> because we couldn't get off to him. Thank God for the uh, National Geographic's. So the idea was to use, to a certain extent, to use the language of romance novels to tell a story that was really about hatred and ultimately about murder. And, uh, and in that same vein, that same idea of, of writing something with a paradox built into it, I wanted to write a story for Tour that uses all the kind of cliches, the conventions of stand-up comedy not even good stand-up comedy, just really lame stand-up comedy. But use, make all those devices tell a story that's not necessarily a funny story so that I would have that built-in paradox. And I ended up writing the story Knock Knock, which has subsequently sold a, it sold a Playboy, and it'll be in the Christmas Playboy, the December Playboy. But until then, it only exists right here, and it's the story that I wrote for tour. So, knock, knock. No, this is the part. <laughs> this is the part that's like sex. You've heard this before. Your job is to be there and to be quiet until I'm done. <laughs> And that goes for your cell phone, too. <laughs> knock, knock. My old man, my old man, he makes everything into a big joke. What can I say? The old man loves to get a laugh. Growing up half the time, I didn't have a clue what his jokes were about, but I laughed anyways. Down at the barbershop, it didn't matter how many guys my father let take cuts ahead of him in line. He just wanted to sit there all Saturday and crack people up, make folks bust a gut. For my old man, getting his sideburns trimmed was definitely a low priority. He says, my old man, he says, Stop me if you've heard this one before. The way my old man tells it, he walks into the oncologist's office and he says, after the chemotherapy, will I be able to play the violin? And in response, the oncologist says, it's metastasized and you've got about six months to live. 
and working his eyebrows like Groucho Marx, tapping the ash from an invisible cigar. My old man says, six months, he says, I want a second opinion. So the oncologist, he says, okay, you've got cancer and your jokes stink. <laughs> so they do the chemotherapy and they give him some radiation like they do. Even if the shit burns him up so bad on the inside that he tells me that taking a piss is like passing razor blades, he's still every Saturday down by the barbershop telling jokes, even if now he's bald as a cue ball. I mean, he's skinny as a bald skeleton, and he's getting to haul around one of those cylinders of oxygen under pressure, like some little version of a ball and chain. He walks into the barbershop, dragging that pressurized cylinder of oxygen with a tube of it going up and looping around his nose and over his ears and around his bald head. And my old man, he says, just a little off the top, please. And folks laugh. Understand me. My old man is no Uncle Milty. He's no Edgar Bergen. The man is skinny as a Halloween skeleton and bald and going to be dead by about six weeks. So it don't matter what he says. Folks are going to hee-haw like donkeys just out of their genuine affection for him. But seriously, I'm not doing him justice. It's my fault if this doesn't come across. But my old man is funnier than he sounds. Maybe his sense of humor is, a, is just a talent I didn't inherit. Back when I was his little Charlie McCarthy, the whole time growing up, he used to ask me, knock, knock. And I'd say, who's there? And he'd say, old lady. And I'd say, old lady who? And he'd say, wow, I didn't know you could yodel. <laughs> me? I didn't get it. I was so stupid. I was seven years old and still stuck in the first grade. I didn't know Switzerland from Shinola but I want for my old man to love me. So I learned to laugh. Whatever he says, I laugh. By old lady, my guess is that he means my mom who ran away and left us. All my old man will say about her is how she was a real looker who just couldn't take a joke. She just was not a good sport. He used to ask me, when that Vinnie Van Gogh cut off his ear and sent it to that whore he was so crazy about, how'd he send it? The punchline is he sent it by ear mail. But being seven years old, I was still stuck back on not knowing who Van Gogh is or, or what's a whore. <laughs> and nothing kills a joke faster than asking my old man to explain himself so when my old man says, what do you get when you cross a pig with Count Dracula? I knew to never ask, what's a Count Dracula? I'd just get a big laugh ready for when he tells me, a hampire. <laughs> and when he says, knock, knock, and I say, who's there? And he says, radio. And I say, radio who? And he's already started to bust a gut when he says, Radio not, I'm going to come in your mouth.
then, then what the hell? I just keep laughing. My whole growing up, my whole time growing up, I figure that I'm just too ignorant to appreciate a really good joke. Me, my, my teachers still haven't covered long division and all the multiplication tables. So it's not my old man's fault. I'm so stupid, I don't know what's come. My old lady, my old lady who abandoned us, he says that she hated that joke. So maybe I just inherited her whole lack of humor. But love, I mean, you have to love your old man. I mean, after you're born, it's not like you get a choice. Nobody wants to see their old man breathing out of some, out of some tank and going into the hospital to die sky high on morphine. And he's not eating a bite of that red-flavored jello they serve for dinner. Stop me if I already told you this one. But my old man gets that prostate cancer that's, that's not even like cancer because it takes 20, 30 years before we even know he's so sick. And the next thing I know is I'm trying to remember all the stuff that he's ever taught me. Like if you spray some WD-40 on the shovel blade before you dig a hole, the digging will go a lot easier. And he taught me how to tie a shoelace and how to make a foul shot in basketball. And he taught me jokes. Lots and lots of jokes. And sure, the man is no Robin Williams. But I watched this movie one time about Robin Williams, who gets dressed up with a red rubber ball on his nose and, and this big rainbow-colored Afro wig and those big clown shoes with a fake carnation stuck in his buttonhole of his shirt that squirts water. And the guy's a hotshot doctor who makes these little kids with cancer laugh so hard they stop dying. Understand me, these bald kid skeletons who look lots more worse off than my old man, it's amazing, but they get healthy. And that whole movie is based on a true story. What I mean is, we all know that laughter is the best medicine. All that time being stuck in the hospital waiting room, I read every copy of the Reader's Digest. And we've all heard that true story about the guy with a brain cancer the size of a grapefruit inside of his skull, and he's about to croak. All the doctors and priests and experts say that he is a goner. Only he forces himself to watch nonstop movies about the Three Stooges. This stage four cancer guy forces himself to laugh nonstop at Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy and those Marx brothers. And he gets healed by the endorphins and the oxygenated blood. So I figure, what have I got to lose? All I need to do is remember some of my old man's favorite gags and to get him started back laughing on the road to recovery. I figure, what's it going to hurt? So this grown-up kid walks into his father's hospice room, pulls up a chair beside the bed and sits down. The son looks into his old man's pale, dying face, and he says, 
So this blonde gal walks into a neighborhood bar where she's never been before, and she's got tits out to here and a tight little hiney, and she asks the bartender for a Michelob, and he serves her a Michelob, except he sneaks a Mickey Finn into her bottle, and this blonde goes unconscious, and every guy in the bar leans her over the edge of the pool table and hikes up her skirt and fucks her, and at closing time, they slap her awake and tell her that she's got to leave. And every few days, this gal with the tits and the ass walks in and asks for a Michelob and gets a Mickey Finn and gets fucked by the crowd until one day she walks in and asks the bartender, can he maybe, please, this time, just give her a Budweiser instead? <laughs> granted, granted, I have not landed this particular shaggy dog story since I was in the first grade. But my old man used to love this next part. The bartender smiles so nice and he says, what, you don't like Michelob no more? And this real looker, she leans over the bar, all confidential, and she whispers, just between you and me, she whispers, Michelob makes my pussy hurt. The first time, the first time I learned that joke, when my old man taught it to me, I didn't know what was pussy. I didn't know Mickey Finn. I didn't know what folks meant when they talked about fucking. But I knew all this kind of talk made my old man laugh. And when he told me to stand up and tell that joke in the barber shop, it made all the barbers and every old man reading detective magazines laugh until half of them blew spit and snot and chewing tobacco out their noses. Now the grown-up son tells his old dying father this same joke. Just the two of them alone in that hospital room late, late at night. And guess what? His old man doesn't laugh. So the son tries another old favorite. He tells the joke about the traveling salesman who gets a phone call from some farmer's daughter he met on the road a couple of months before, and she says, remember me? We had some laughs, and I was a good sport. And the salesman says, how you doing? And she says, I'm pregnant, and I'm going to kill myself. And the salesman says, he says, damn, you are a good sport. At seven years old, when I was seven years old, I could really put that joke over. But tonight, tonight the old man's still not laughing. How I learned to say I love you was by laughing for my old man, even if I had to fake it. And that's all I want in return. All I want from him is a laugh, just one laugh. And he's not coming across with even a giggle, not a snicker, not even a groan. And worse than not laughing, the old man squints his eyes shut tight and opens them brimming with tears, and one fat tear floods out the bottom of each eye and washes down each cheek. The old man's gasping his big, toothless mouth like he's screaming or panting, but can't do neither, crying big tears down the wrinkles of both cheeks, just soaking his pillow.
So this kid, who's nobody's little kid, not anymore, but who all he knows to do is tell these stupid jokes. He reaches into his pants pocket and takes out a fake plastic carnation flower that just for laughs sprays water all over the old crybaby's face. The kid tells about the Polak who's carrying a rifle through the woods when he comes across a naked gal laying back on a bed of soft green moss with her legs spread and this gal is a real looker. And she looks at the Polak and his gun and she says, what are you doing? And the Polak says, I'm hunting for game. And this real looker, she gives him a big wink and she says, I'm game, so pow! The Polak shoots her. <laughs> it used to be, it used to be this joke constituted a gold-plated, bona fide, surefire laugh riot. But the old man just keeps dying. He's still boo-hooing and not even, not even making an effort. And no matter what, the old man has got to meet me halfway on this. I can't save him if he doesn't want to live. I ask him, what do you get when you cross a faggot with a kike? I ask him, what's the difference between dog shit and a nigger? And he's still not getting any better. I'm thinking maybe the cancer's got into his ears with the, with the morphine and what all. It could be he just can't hear me. So just to test, can he hear me? I lean into his old crybaby face and I ask, how do you get a nun pregnant? Then more loud, maybe too loud for this being a mackerel snapper hospital, I yell, you fuck her! <laughs> In my desperation... I try fag jokes and wetback jokes and kite jokes. Really, every effective course of treatment known to medical science. <laughs> and the old man's still slipping away. Laying here in this bed is the man who made everything into a big joke. Just the fact that he's not biting scares the shit out of me. I'm yelling, knock, knock. And when he says nothing in response, it's the same as him not having a pulse. I'm yelling, knock, knock. I'm yelling, why did the existentialist cross the road? And he's still dying. The old man's leaving me not knowing the answer to anything. He's abandoning me while I'm still so fucking stupid. In my desperation, I reach out to take the, the limp blue fingers of his cold, cold dying hand. And he doesn't flinch, not even when I grind a joy buzzer against the blue skin of his ice-cold palm. I'm yelling, knock, knock. And nothing kills a joke faster than asking my old man to explain himself. But I'm yelling, why'd the old lady walk out on her laugh-a-minute funny man jokester husband and her four-year-old kid? And laying there in that bed, my old man, he stops breathing, no heartbeat, totally flatlined. So this kid who's sitting bedside in this hospital room late, late at night, he takes the joke equivalent of those electric paddles doctors use to stop your heart attack, the hee-haw equivalent of what a paramedic Robin Williams would use on you in some clown emergency room, a kind of Three Stooges defibrillator. The kid takes a big, creamy, heaped-up custard pie topped with a thick, thick layer of whipped cream 
The same as Charlie Chaplin would save your life with. And the kid reaches this pie up sky high overhead, as high as the kid can reach, and brings it down hard, lightning fast, slam dunking it, as hard as the blast from a Pollock shotgun. Pow! Right in his old man's kisser. And despite the miraculous, well-documented healing powers of the comedic arts, my old man dies taking a big, bloody shit in his bed. No, really. I swear. It was all funnier than it sounds. Please don't blame my old man. If you're not laughing at this point, it's got to be my fault. I, I just didn't tell it right, you know? You mess up a punchline and you can totally botch even the best joke. For example, I went back to the barber shop and I told them how he died and how I tried to save him right up to and including the custard pie and how the hospital had their security goons escort me up to the crazy ward for a little 72-hour observation. <laughs> and even telling that part, I must have fucked it up. Because those barbershop guys, they just looked at me. I told them about seeing and smelling my old man dead and smeared all over with blood and shit and whipped cream. All that stink and sugar. And they just looked at me and looked at me. The barbers and the old guys chewing tobacco and nobody laughed. And standing in that same barber shop all these years later, I say, knock, knock. The barbers stopped cutting hair. The old goobers stopped chewing on their chewing tobacco. I say, knock, knock. And nobody takes a breath. And it's like I'm standing in a room filled full of dead men. And I tell them, death. Death is there. Don't you people never read Emily Dickerson? You never heard of Jean-Paul Stewart? I wiggle my eyebrows and tap the ash from my invisible cigar, and I say, who's there? I say, I don't know who's there. I can't even play the violin. What I do know is I've got a brain filled with jokes that I can't ever forget, like a tumor the size of a grapefruit inside of my skull. And I know that eventually even dog shit turns white and stops stinking. But I have this permanent head filled with crap that I've been trained my whole life to think is really funny. And for the first time since I was a little stooge standing in that barbershop saying fag and cunt and nigger and saying kike, I figure out that I wasn't telling a joke. I was the joke. I mean, I finally, I finally get it. You understand me. A bona fide gold-plated joke is like a Michelob served ice cold with a Mickey Finn by somebody smiling so nice that you won't never know how bad you've been fucked. 
And a punchline is called a punchline for a very good reason. Because punchlines are a sugar-coated fist with whipped cream hiding the brass knuckles that socks you right in the kisser, hitting you pow! Right in your face and saying, I am smarter than you and I am bigger than you and I call the shots here, buddy boy. And standing in that same old Saturday morning barber shop, I say, knock, knock. I demand, knock, knock. And finally, one old barbershop codger, he says in barely a tobacco whisper, so soft you can hardly hear him, he says, who's there? And I wait for a beat. I wait just for the tension. My old man, he taught me that timing is crucial. Timing is everything. Until finally, I smile so nice, and I say, radio. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>